So, tonight, uh, we're joined by Dr. Byron Smith and Pastor Helen Wright, and Byron will be speaking with us on the topic of Heads in the Sand, Australian Climate Politics and the Church. Um, Helen will be sharing with us her song, All, Crea All of Creation Groans, and um, just as an intro to Helen, who'll sing after Byron presents. Helen is the Creative and Justice Pastor at Newtown Mission. Helen's a singer, songwriter, um, and as I said before, check out Heart Cries Worship. And Helen has a passion to find a collective voice in crying out to our God of justice and seeking his kingdom restoration. Um, so we welcome you, Helen, and Heather um, as well with us tonight. So let me introduce Dr. Byron Smith. Dr. Byron Smith is an ecological ethicist and Christian minister. He's PhD in theological ethics from the University of Edinburgh, focused on emotional responses to climate change in the context of Christian identity. He also holds honours degrees in theology, philosophy and literature. His time is split between pastoral ministry at Paddington Anglican Church and a speaking writing ministry helping churches join the dots between ecological justice and faith. He's authored a number of scholarly articles and book chapters, is a climate consultant for Common Grace, writes for a variety of online platforms and hosts a news digest podcast, The Good Dirt with Byron Smith. Check that out and has joined in nonviolent direct actions against new coal projects and in support of people seeking asylum. Byron lives here in Sydney with Jessica and their two young children and loves making soil and honey or watching the worms and the bees do so. Uh, to me, Byron is also my housemate just next door, a great mind, an engaging conversation partner who has a gentle, caring spirit and who I am humbled to call friends. So please welcome Byron. Thanks, Brooke, uh, and thank you for coming. Um, I do need to update that bio to say I also now live with Brooke. Um, and like Brooke, I also got to see Nakia Louis perform uh, this week um, on the final episode of the ABC's comedy show, Get Kraken. And if you haven't yet seen that episode, please do. It was remarkable, remarkable television. That's all I'll say about it. Uh, I was born on the Gunnable country, so I really should have known that answer. Uh, I grew up on Karingai land, now live on Gadigal land. My ancestors came here from Scotland, England, Wales, Denmark, Germany, and I pay my respects to all Aora elders and to all your ancestors. Now, there are all kinds of reasons not to listen tonight. It's a school night. It's another middle-aged white guy giving a monologue. It's a talk about politics and religion. Both topics tend to generate more heat than light. And it's a talk about heat. Too much of it. In fact, we're talking about so much heat. Think about the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima in 1945. Little boy. That single bomb detonated with enough force to instantly end tens of thousands of lives and claimed tens of thousands more soon after. The total energy released by that blast has been calculated at 63 terajoules, a number so large I could only understand it by converting it into, that's enough energy to boil water for 753 million cups of tea. Now, due to human activities, the Earth is gaining heat energy, a lot of heat energy, as much as that atomic weapon that leveled Hiroshima, in fact. Due to overstuffing the planetary blanket of greenhouse gases, Earth is gaining the equivalent energy to a Hiroshima bomb every single year. Oh, no, sorry, not every year, that would be ridiculous. It's every day. Every day, one Hiroshima bomb's worth of new heat energy. Sorry, not every day, every minute. Think about that, every minute, another atomic blast of heat swelling the planet's thermometers. But of course, not every minute, not even every second. The actual answer is every quarter of a second, Earth gains an atomic bomb's worth of energy. We're talking about a lot of heat. And that heat does things. It certainly gets a lot of people hot under the collar. It's a topic that has, at last count, played a major role in bringing down either five or six of our most recent PMs, depending how you count it. So I'm pleased you made it here tonight to discuss this. Because we'd all rather be doing something else. This isn't a topic that makes for fun listening. You know, you've probably already heard my one joke of the evening. Now, some of you here tonight 
are likely Christians and others will recognise that we're in a church and that I work for a church and I talk about Jesus stuff. And tonight we're going to be mixing science and politics and religion. So what could possibly go wrong? Now, I want to begin by addressing one of those reasons that many Christians use to keep their head in the sand about this topic, one of the excuses to look away or to not look too closely. This probably isn't where many of you are at, I'm guessing, but I bet you've probably heard it, or something like it, so I want to address it. In my decade or so of talking about climate and Christ, it's undoubtedly the number one excuse I've heard for churches not to engage. It's this, and I'm actually going to quote from a message I received recently, similar to comments I've heard scores of times. Christians like me, talking about climate change and engaging in actions for climate justice distracts people from the most important issue, Jesus. And so, while climate change is an issue that requires a good deal of consideration and work, it should not be the priority of Christians. That's what my friend said. Now, here's my response. Jesus isn't an issue. Jesus is the heartbeat of all creation, the saviour of the whole world, the lord of every creature the one in whom all things hold together, the one through whom all God's love flows and through whom all love returns to the Creator. So every time we genuinely love our neighbour, we are participating in the overflowing love of God in Christ. The book of 1 John asks, how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help them? As I'll explain in a few minutes, Australia is committing mass murder through our climate policies. To say that caring about this and acting upon that care is a distraction from loving Jesus is to fundamentally misunderstand the Christian good news. The Book of 1 John also says, Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And there's no zero-sum game between loving God and loving our neighbour, as those, those two are in competition or have to be balanced off against one another. They are two sides of the same coin. Christians can walk and chew gum, proclaiming the good news in both word and deed. And when we remain in wrongdoing, when we continue to uphold and benefit from systems that actively and indeed catastrophically harm our neighbours, then how on earth can they hear us when we try to speak to them of the love of God? Love does no harm to a neighbour, the Apostle Paul says. And so how we care for creation reflects what we think of the Creator. How we treat our neighbour reflects whether we're following Jesus, who moved into our neighbourhood and shared our humanity. How we respect the lives of those who are suffering reflects our responsiveness to the spirit of life, who groans with all those who yearn for justice and truth and peace. Thus, whether we care for our common home is one of those litmus tests that reveal our heart and to the extent to which our hearts have been shaped by the heart of a God who declared that home good, very good. And this would all be true in less compromised circumstances. But we live in an age where the stability, beauty and abundance of our planetary home is not just diminished or under threat, but its very habitability is in doubt. Globally, coral reefs are bleaching, forests are falling, oceans are rising, species are disappearing, heat waves are worsening, glaciers are melting, air quality is deteriorating, clean flesh water is dwindling. In the last 40 years, fully half of all wildlife has been squeezed out by our ever-expanding demands. Almost 9 million people are killed annually by air pollution. That's more than terrorism or war or motor vehicle collisions or gun deaths or malaria or AIDS or all of those put together. And all this would be bad enough if these were threats arising from elsewhere. But we live in a nation that's at the forefront of driving many of these harms through our resource-intensive lifestyles and our profit-hungry corporations and our complicit government. Australians consume more resources per capita than all but a handful of nations. We export more coal than pretty much anyone else. We are the only developed nation in the top 10 deforesters. Our rate of recorded mammal extinctions is the worst in the world. And there are real differences between the policies, priorities and perspectives of the various parties and candidates on how to respond to these realities. So if uh, Michael and Megan are going to be doing politics without the polarisation. This may be the opposite. <laughs> some ignore them. Some minimise their extent or severity. Some shift the blame elsewhere. Some accept the scientific findings but propose little more than symbolic or incremental change. 
and some strive for more ambitious efforts at living within our ecological means without stealing from our neighbours or future generations. And tonight, if you take one thing, I want you to take that how we care for our common home matters. It matters to our neighbours struggling to survive, it matters to our children and their children, it matters to God. Now, I apologise at this point for not having a handout. Normally, I would have a, a summary of many of the things I'm saying with resources for you to chase up so that you don't need to be trying to scribble down statistics or anything. Uh, unfortunately, my laptop uh, of nine and a half years died a week ago, and much of the week has been spent just getting that back on track, uh, as well as the fact that two of the major parties have uh, released climate policies in the last 48 hours. It's somewhat... Uh, uh, shifted my preparation for tonight, but I do hope to have a handout uh, put together later and that will go up on the Facebook page or somewhere. We will get that to you if you would like that. So, what then is actually happening? Some of you might have heard me summarise climate science before with four simple questions and four even simpler answers, and here they are. If you can remember these and remember the scientifically correct answers, then you know enough to start engaging with this topic. Question one, is it happening? Is the planet actually warming? What are the signs? Question two, is it us? Are human actions primarily responsible for that warming? How do we know? Question three, is it bad? Is this a trend? Is this trend a problem for us, for the other creatures on the planet? Question four, can we do anything? Is it possible to have any kind of effect on this warming? Is it happening? Is it us? Is it bad? Can we do anything? Remember those four questions. And here are the answers. Yes, 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 and yes. So, is it happening? Yes, the globe is rapidly warming. Four Hiroshima bombs every second. That reality is visible in every data set that we have, not just actual thermometer readings from all over the globe, but it's visible in the melting of ice, glaciers, ice sheets, floating sea ice. It's visible in declining snow cover, in thawing permafrost, in rising oceans, in rising atmospheric humidity. It's visible in tree lines shifting towards the poles and higher up mountains. It's visible in the migration of animal species on land and water towards the poles and to higher elevations. It's visible in the shifting timing of seasonal events. And though at one level we can't see the global temperature rise because it's an average across a whole planet across decades of measurements, nonetheless we can catch increasingly startling snapshots of some of the manifestations of this extra heat. Our record-smashing summer, not just new records all over the place and not just a new record average summer temperature for the continent, but a new record for how much we beat the old record by. In a data set with random distribution, you'd expect new records to be beaten by ever smaller amounts, not to see them smashed like they were this summer. And we also saw the consequences. Fish kills, mass fish kills on a Darling River that was both too hot and starved of water, due to, partially due to devastating drought across most of New South Wales and parts of Queensland which was then cruelly followed by major floods in Queensland, not just in Townsville, but also half a million cattle killed, many in paddocks that had been bone dry until the, rain, the rains came. Meanwhile, down in Tasmania, bushfires once again encroached into areas that hadn't seen fire for centuries or millennia, and which are just not adapted to fire like most Australian bushes. And in just the last couple of years, we've seen multiple instances of massive coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef as the coral gets pushed above its survival threshold by water that's too hot. We've seen mass die-off of kelp forests off the coast of Tasmania and Western Australia. We've seen mass mangrove die-off across the top end. We've seen bats falling dead from the sky as their temperature threshold is passed at 42 degrees. We've seen another mammal species, the uh, um, Bramble K. melomus driven to extinction by rising seas in the Torres Strait. We've seen homes inundated by those rising waters in the Torres Strait, and more and more. So yes, it is warming. Is it us? The idea that certain trace atmospheric gases trap heat like a blanket, keeping the Earth's surface warmer than it would otherwise be, has been around for about 150 years. The idea that burning fossil fuels might thicken that blanket and warm the planet has been around for over 100 years. Good data to show that this is actually already happening has been around for decades. Alternative explanations have been eliminated through careful scrutiny, one by one, and so since the 1990s, there have not been any other credible scientific accounts. So it's no surprise that out of the 198 scientific institutions of national or international standing that have examined the evidence and reached a conclusion, there are 198 of them that have concluded human activities are the primary driver of recently observed warming. 
Now, at this point, let me address the number one misunderstanding that continues to be repeated by pundits and politicians. The climate has changed before, people say, with the implication being that therefore any changes now must also be natural. A quick analogy to illustrate the limits of that insight. People have died of natural causes before, but if you're a police detective and you walk into a room that has a dead body with a knife sticking out of its back, you're probably going to arrest the guy standing over the body with blood all over his hands, aren't you? That climate can and has previously changed naturally is part of the knowledge base from which scientists conclude that the current rapid period of warming is caused by our actions, especially the burning of coal, oil and gas. So is it happening? Yes. Is it us? Yes. Is it bad? Yes. Let's put it this way. <clears throat> I can multiply examples here, but 20,000 years ago, the global average temperature was roughly 10 degrees. That was cold enough for there to be ice sheets two or three kilometers thick from London to Moscow, from Boston to Chicago to Seattle. In fact, there was three times as much ice on the planet as there is now, and sea levels were about 120 meters lower because so much of the water was trapped as ice. It was commonly, it's commonly called an ice age. Scientifically, it's known as a glaciation period. The world looked very different. Almost every ecosystem was different to the world we know now. Then, over a period of eight to 10,000 years, due to natural patterns in the Earth's orbit, the planet gradually warmed to about 14 degrees or so. Ice melted, seas rose, the world was transformed into what was known as the Holocene, the period of the last 10,000 years during which sea levels and climate patterns have remained remarkably stable. This is the period of agriculture, of cities, of recorded history. And widespread agriculture, cities, written history, these things are possible when the climate is stable because you can invest in infrastructure and it will still be there 10 years later, not underwater. You can plant seeds and expect the rains to come at roughly the same time as last year. So a change of roughly four degrees Celsius over a period of eight to 10,000 years radically transformed almost every ecosystem on the planet. That was a natural change to which the Earth's natural and fledgling human systems adapted. But now on our current trajectory of burning coal, oil and gas, we're looking at something like another four degrees of warming. Sufficient warming to transform climate patterns, rainfall, wind, temperature, ocean currents, to transform ecosystems, to see coral reefs bleach and die, rainforests dry out and burn, frozen tundra thaw and release the stored carbon in its permafrost. And all that, not in eight to 10,000 years, like last time, but in a single century. That's 80 to 100 times faster. So when people say, the world will adapt, there have been warming and cooling before. The answer is, there has been, but at nothing like this speed. Humanity has never faced anything remotely as disruptive as what is coming, what we're already seeing the foothills of. It's no exaggeration to say that life as we know it is at stake. Here's one quote from Professor Kevin Anderson, one of the UK's leading climate researchers, who is summarizing the current understanding of the level of disruption that four degrees of warming in a century would likely bring. This is a very complex topic. He's trying to distill it down to a single sentence. He says, a four degrees Celsius future is incompatible with an organized global community. Is likely to be beyond adaptation, is devastating to a majority of ecosystems, and has a high probability of not being stable by which he's referring to those rainforests drying out and burning or to the tundra uh, permafrost thawing and releasing its carbon, worsening the problem. I could go into much greater detail here, but I'm, I'm trying to summarize for the sake of time. Four, can we do anything? Yes, the pace and scale of warming depend closely on how much we dig up and burn. There are details, there are other influences from ruminant agriculture and from landfill and from deforestation and other land use change, but the main game is how much of the fossil carbon that's been safely stored underground for hundreds of millions of years are we gonna dig up and release into the global atmosphere and oceans, into the active carbon cycle, where it will disrupt so many of the basic conditions of life on Earth. So if we leave more underground, then the rate and scale of warming will be lower, still disruptive, but perhaps not quite so civilization ending. According to the UN, to have a shot at staying below 1.5 degrees of warming, which was the more ambitious target agreed by all the nations of the world uh, in 2015 in Paris, 
Um, so in order to have a shot at staying below 1.5 degrees, not a very good shot, but a chance, we need to see a 50% cut in global emissions by 2030. 50% cut by 2030. And a complete uh, decarbonisation down to net zero emissions by some time between 2040 and 2050. Now, if Australia is going to be part of that, then really, by all accounts, we ought to be ahead of that curve, given our massive historical responsibility of burning so much already, digging so much up already, given our ongoing uh, profligacy of how much we currently consume, and given our unusual wealth and ability to adapt that not all countries have, plus given our enormous land area. So really, we ought to be ahead of that curve. So, those four questions give you an accurate and basically sufficient handle on climate science. It is happening, it is us, it is bad, and it's possible to make it less bad. But that leads us to a fifth question that's going to take us into politics. Are we doing anything? And the answer is also yes. Indeed, for the last five years, the world has been adding more new renewable capacity than fossil fuels and nuclear combined. Maybe that was a surprise to you. Maybe you thought I was going to suddenly say that things were bad. And I am, because that's nowhere, <laughs> nowhere, nowhere near enough. We have a global agreement made in 2015, as I mentioned, that was hard won after 25 years of negotiation, and yet is still inadequate to prevent calamitous levels of warming. When you add up all the commitments made by all the countries of the world, you still get to considerably more than three degrees of warming. And that agreement is currently being undermined by the US, as you may well know, with Trump uh, indicating his intention to pull out of that as soon as they are legally able to, as well as by Australia and Saudi Arabia and Russia and Brazil. These, these are some of the foot-dragging climate recalcitrant nations who do their best to um, thwart and limit uh, international agreement. And we are very firmly on that list. And during those 25 years of negotiation, more than half of all human emissions since the Industrial Revolution have occurred. That is, during the period in which the science has been clear and international negotiations have been underway, this is something we've mainly been doing with our eyes open, not merely in ignorance. Because we've been burning a lot of coal since the Industrial Revolution, a couple of hundred years ago, but the amount has kept on increasing. And the year in which we burnt the most coal, does anyone know? Of the most? 2018, exactly, was the year we burned the most fossil fuels, um, narrowly beating out 2017, which in turn, you know, you get the picture. Almost year on year increases. David Wallace Wells, who's just written a new book on this, uh, writes When I learned the astonishing fact that more than half of the carbon we have emitted into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels was emitted in the past 25 years, that really shocked me. This means we've burned more fossil fuels since the UN established the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, than in all of the centuries before. So we have done more damage knowingly than we ever managed in ignorance. That is a horrifying fact, he writes. A couple more recent stories to illustrate our plight. A recent report found that the five biggest publicly traded oil companies spend $200 million annually on lobbying just in the US, and then also spend another $197 million annually on greenwashing, promoting their support for the Paris Agreement, making it look like they're doing more than they are. Yet they're only spending 3% of their budgets on cleaner sources of energy, and they're still spending billions on exploring for more fossil fuels when we already can't burn all the fossil carbon that is currently being extracted, let alone the reserves that are already identified as likely profitable in future. The business plan of these massive corporations literally involves rendering the planet uninhabitable for most of the billions of people who live on it. And things a little better here in Australia. The coal industry more or less owns our governments at state and federal level. They are major donors, um, and there is a revolving door uh, of personnel uh, between ministers and their staff and the uh, mining industry, particularly the coal industry. Until very recently, there'd basically never been a proposed coal mine or coal mine expansion that hadn't been waived through by governments of both major parties. A recent Freedom of Information request found that the mining industry meets with the New South Wales government more than 10 times as often 
as all the major environmental groups combined, meeting them almost once a week. Now, at this point, again, one of the inevitable excuses, well, Australia's too small to make a difference. Our emissions are irrelevant when China and the US and India and insert another foreign scapegoat here are so huge. But we punch way above our weight. With a tiny 0.3% of the world's population, less than a three hundredth, our domestic emissions are over 1.5 of global emissions, meaning that per capita we are one of the dirtiest nations on the planet. If you include the emissions from all the coal and gas that's extracted here and over which the Commonwealth has veto rights, then we're closer to 5% of global emissions. And if you consider fossil fuel reserves, that is all the stuff that's been identified underground as profitable to dig up but hasn't been dug up yet, then Australia has something like, these figures are a bit squishy because, you know, some of it's a bit secretive, but something like 8 to 9% of global reserves. All that with a tiny, tiny fraction of the world's population. And there actually isn't a nation on Earth with a higher ratio of fossil fuel reserves to population than in Australia, as far as I've been able to find. Mongolia might come close. And that means there's nowhere on Earth where political action, including, but certainly not limited to voting, can have a bigger impact in keeping fossil fuels underground. We are the Saudi Arabia of coal, controlling a larger share of the international seaborne coal market than Saudi Arabia does of the international oil market. But even if we weren't punching above our weight, even if we contributed just 0.3% of emissions, even then it would be morally indefensible to abdicate responsibility for addressing our share of the problem, especially when the stakes could barely be higher. That would be to embrace freeloading when the very habitability of the planet is in question. But Byron, I hear you say, coal is Australia's most valuable export. Well, only if we don't count its true cost. When you include the damage to public health from particulate air pollution and the climate damages, which means damage to agriculture and to cities and to coastal communities and to ecosystems and to geopolitical stability, then coal actually has a huge net cost on the global economy. It's doing far more harm than good. I sometimes say it's a way of extracting wealth from the lungs of poor people in India and China and putting it in the pockets of a few plutocrats, billionaires. The only way people get rich from coal is by pushing those costs onto others, typically onto others who haven't and don't, and in some cases can't, consent to them. And so coal is a form of theft. Coal is also murder. As I mentioned earlier, 8.8 .8 million, almost 9 million people die annually from air pollution alone. That's four every minute. And coal is the number one contributor to particulate air pollution. So, how has Australia been doing lately? Well, here's where the news gets cheerier. No, it doesn't. The coalition under Abbott Turnbull Morrison has done its utmost to dismantle and delay all sanity and climate policy. It's played a spoiler role in international negotiations, has tried to bury the fact that our emissions continue to rise, has cheated on Australia's contributions to the Green Climate Fund, has dismissed the latest landmark IPC report, has fear-mongered relentlessly over renewables, has backed its fossil fuel funders to the hilt in rhetoric and policy, it's defunded critical scientific research into climate, it's done all it can to prop up the disastrous proposed Adani Carmichael coal mine, uh, including changing legislation to make it easier to bypass the lack of clear consent from traditional owners, it's sought to abolish, dismantle, water down or defang the Climate Commission, the Climate Authority, the Australian Renew Renewable Energy Agency, the Renewable Energy Target and pretty much anything with climate in its name or purview. Australia currently has no coherent climate policy. Attempt after attempt at bringing forward climate policies that have been increasingly close to glorified do-nothing plans have nonetheless been torpedoed by Conservative Coalition MPs who remain stubbornly defiant against the overwhelming scientific evidence of human-caused global warming. Meanwhile, their major donors in the dirty industry laugh all the way to the bank. The largely ineffective leaf, fig leaf of what was initially called the Direct Action Fund and has since run through a few other names, um, uh, basically consists of paying billions, mainly to farmers, in order for them to either plant trees they may have well been about to plant anyway, or to pay them to do nothing. Uh, that is not to clear land. And meanwhile, land clearing rates continue to skyrocket, making Australia the only OECD nation to make the top 10 deforesters list, as I mentioned. The coalition also ruined the Murray-Darling Basin Plan by excluding consideration of climate change 
and by taking the lowest end of the scientific recommendations for ecologically necessary water flows, cutting another third off them, then systematically thwarting attempts to even achieve that, doing the bidding of major, major irrigators and turning a blind eye to massive water fraud at the expense of communities downstream and the health of the river as a whole, while stonewalling attempts at transparency and accountability through a royal commission in South Australia. The coalition heavily lobbied UNESCO to prevent a World Heritage in Danger listing for the Great Barrier Reef while allocating a tiny fraction of the necessary funding to look after it and channel channeling even these meagre funds through a tiny organisation with links to the mining industry and without a transparent tender process and while fighting in court every attempt to hold them to their solemn promises to do everything necessary to preserve the Great Barrier Reef which they made through the UNESCO Treaty. The coalition continues to subsidise the fossil fuel industry to the tune of billions annually. It has undermined or blocked efforts to save lives through improving air quality. It did what it could to protect the big four banks, who are the major funders of fossil fuel infrastructure in Australia, from the Royal Commission that exposed widespread criminality. Our current Prime Minister, back when he was Treasurer, brought a lump of coal into Parliament in the middle of a deadly heatwave and waved it around, declaring that it was nothing to be scared of. His predecessor, claimed he'd never lead a party that was not as committed to climate action as he was, and then proved it by doing nothing. And his predecessor said, coal is good for humanity, and this so-called settled science of climate change is absolute crap. And climate action is akin to killing goats to appease volcano gods. And if you've been following the news over the last couple of days, one nation is currently getting dragged over the coals, rightly so, for Pauline Hanson engaging in conspiracy theories about the Port Arthur massacre, and for other senior figures in the party meeting with lobbyists from the US gun industry, offering to do their bidding for cash. But the coalition government has engaged in far more conspiracy thinking with regards to climate science, and has far more regular meetings with the fossil fuel industry. Just imagine if, amidst all the current scandals, one of the revelations was that One Nation had been recorded joking about the massacre, but that is precisely what government ministers have done on microphones uh, in regards to victims of climate change. So that's the coalition's climate legacy. What's their current policies? Current policy is a 26 to 28% emission cut by 2030. Uh, allowing the use of carryover credits from the Kyoto period um, uh, which means that they're going to meet that target by exploiting an accounting loophole that uh, Australia won at the last minute back in 1998 that basically allowed us to be the only developed nation to increase our emissions between 1990 and 2012. Um, and other nations are not using any leftover credits from the Kyoto period, and that's been looked down on and widely regarded by nonpartisan and international climate policy experts as an illegitimate way of accounting for national targets. Um, the direct action policy that Tony Abbott introduced became the Emissions Reduction Fund under Turnbull and has now been rebranded again as the Climate Solutions Fund under Morrison and been topped up with a mere $200 million more annually, which is less money than even climate change's crap Tony Abbott put into it. Uh, this fund has faced heavy criticism from experts who say it's difficult to determine if the fund is actually achieving much. It's free money to polluters asking them to pollute less, but most goes to farmers for uh, planting or for promising not to cut down trees and it's hard to tell if they would have done that anyway and there's also no mechanism to ensure that they don't cut down those trees long into the future um, or no, no accounting for potential bushfires that may mean the, the forests burn in any case. So in addition to rebranding this failed policy that was never intended to be more than a fig leaf and which largely consists of giving extra money to the already wealthy to do things they might have been going to do anyway and in, in addition to spending considerably less on it than his openly climate science denying forerunner who pioneered it, Prime Minister Morrison continues with the assumption that Australia is allowed to break the Paris Agreement rules by exploiting that dodgy accounting loophole. Furthermore, Australia is the only country to use climate funding to upgrade coal-fired power plants, with just yesterday Scott Morrison announcing uh, fresh efforts to subsidise coal in Queensland. Uh, the government is also factoring in, in their... In their plans, emission cuts from the Snowy 2.0 scheme, and yet they haven't actually signed off on doing that yet. And they're also counting emissions cuts from a, uh, a new link to Tasmania's hydro dams, which actually only makes sense, uh, experts say, if the mainland 
uh, electricity grid rapidly reduces coal. And so there's a bit of a contradiction there. Um, so the bottom line is that emissions have been rising year on year consistently since the abolition of the carbon price in 2013, a fact that the government has tried to hide by publishing uh, those numbers uh, in dead periods. They've often come out on Christmas Eve at like 4.55 p.m. And so a couple of weeks ago, a group of 28 climate scientists, academics, and former heads of energy companies released a joint statement to correct the record. They said Australia is not on track to meet its 2030 emissions reduction target, and even if it was, the target itself is woefully inadequate for what science says must be done to avert dangerous climate change. Uh, and then on top of that, we're also double counting for our inadequate contributions to the Green Climate Fund. This is an agreement from all the wealthy nations of the world to help the poorer nations develop clean energy um, uh, as they grow. And part of the rules for that is that the commitments made to that fund are meant to be new and additional, but Australia, rather than providing new and additional funds, just rebadged money that was already in the foreign aid budget. But things are changing, particularly in uh, public sentiment. The latest figures on Australia's attitudes and understanding of climate science and policy are actually quite amazing. Almost every single metric is an improvement from last year, some very significantly so. Uh, and just consider how far these stats are from the policy priorities of the government, but also uh, of the opposition. Or put differently, think about how willing the major parties are to put the interests of their donors ahead of the interests of voters. I'll just read a couple of them. Uh, three quarters of Australians accept that climate change is occurring. 73% are concerned about climate change. That's, uh, these are all increases. Um, seven out of 10 agree the government needs to implement a plan to close old coal plants and replace them. Um, and almost as many, 67%, want that to happen within the next 20 years. 50% um, support no new coal projects at all. Uh, and only 20% think we should be pulling out of the Paris Agreement. Um, when people were asked how many jobs coal provides in Australia, the average estimate was 25 times larger than the actual figure, reflecting the amount of money that the coal industry puts into PR. And when asked coal's contribution to Australia's GDP, the average estimate was 10.9%. The actual figure is about 1%. Um, so let's, let's push on. The Australian Labor Party, um, uh, just in the last 48 hours, has released an update on its climate policy. And given that polls indicate they're currently very likely to win the next election, it's worth considering the merits of their proposal. First, the headlines. They propose a 70, oh, sorry, a 45% emissions reduction by 2030, uh, with net zero by 2050. They propose a 50% renewables target by 2030. Um, and they're initially offering bipartisan support for the abandoned coalition policy around the National Energy Guarantee, which was the fourth best policy option that directly led to the downfall of Malcolm Turnbull as PM and then was promptly shelved by Scott Morrison. But they're saying they're not going to be held captive by the demand to be bipartisan if the coalition continue to just uh, play uh, Stonewall. So let's think briefly about the good, the bad and the ugly of these policies. The overall headline target of a 45% reduction is streets ahead of the coalition's small target. Based on recent calculations, the coalition's target, if similar levels of ambition were replicated around the world, would result in a world 4.4 degrees warmer than pre-industrial world. That would be an unsurvivable hellscape for the majority of the world's population and for most of life on Earth. It's effectively a plan for genocide on an unimaginable scale. So, Labor are doing somewhat better than outright genocide. That's a plus. Unlike the coalition, who now have basically zero actual policy mechanisms to achieve their shamefully inadequate target, the ALP policy is actually a policy. It's trying to do stuff, not just pretend to do stuff. It includes a commitment to net zero emissions by 2050, which is a crucial acknowledgement that the long-term goal is complete decarbonisation, and that is very good for long-term planning. Many pieces of fossil fuel infrastructure proposed today have lifespans that exceed 2050, meaning that if we're going to be net zero by then, we can't keep building such infrastructure. Now, the bad. Crucially, the ALP's new policy continues to treat climate, both rhetorically and in substance, as something less than a civilization-threatening emergency. 
and so continues to send the message to the electorate that the consensus of experts who claim that it is must be overstating things. Second, by adopting the coalition's national energy guarantee as the framework, the ALP are adopting their framing. Um, now, I'm sure some people would say it's politically savvy because it wedges the coalition, but from a policy perspective, it locks in low ambition and limits the ability to transition rapidly. Um, uh, let's jump ahead. Uh, and then now to the ugly. The 45% target and actual climate policies may be streets ahead of the coalition, but it's still miles away from anything that could be considered necessary or just to be doing our fair share to avoid or minimise climate change, unless you allow arguments that uh, amount to special pleading for Australia. But we ought to be getting the opposite of special pleading. We're rich, we have huge clean energy resources, we have a long history of being hugely carbon intensive. If there's any country that morally ought to be in the lead for decarbonising ambition, it's us. Uh, and Bill Shorten has also been pretty ambivalent about Adani and has effectively said that Adani doesn't matter um, and that stopping it won't lower emissions using the usual drug dealer's defence that the government has used successfully in court, that if we weren't supplying the stuff, someone else would. But for multiple reasons, I think that's a pretty fundamental misunderstanding uh, of the way these things work. But I'll skip over that. Uh, also, just today, the Greens have announced an updated climate policy. They're saying net zero emissions nationally in 2040, not 2050. They're saying a 2030 cutoff date for coal expor exports and for shutdown of Australia's coal-fired power plants uh, with a yearly limit of, on coal exports from 2020 with resource companies needing to secure export permits at auction. They're explicitly saying that thermal coal is no longer compatible with human life. They have a 100% renewables target by 2030. And if we actually took the rate of renewables installation in Australia of just the last two years and maintained it, we'd reach 100% renewables by 2032. So the labour policy actually involves putting the brakes on renewables if we're only going to be at 50% by 2030. Uh, they also have other parts of their policy, um, but I won't go into that because the Greens are obviously loonies, right? Um, so far, off the scale as to be not considered credible by more than a tiny fraction of the population and let alone uh, the other minor parties who actually have climate policies that are at least uh, in the right ballpark or a similar ballpark um, such as Socialist Alliance or uh, the Safe Climate Party. Uh, and this is where we encounter the concept called the Overton Window, which is a concept in political philosophy uh, relating to that window of what's thinkable and doable, what's rational, what, what are the, the, the reasonable people think, what's the acceptable limits of public opinion beyond which you become uh, uh, radical and then ultimately irrational and silly. Um, uh, because, as I've been trying to say, there's a really fundamental disconnect between Australia's public policy discussion around climate and what the science actually says is necessary, or what the principles of justice uh, read in light of the science uh, say are necessary. Um, and and there, are, there are two sets of laws at work here. There's the, the laws of political opinion and uh, public policy needing to be moderate and incremental, and then there are the laws of physics. And it's a question of which, which one of those laws are going to be more amenable to being changed. So, my conclusion to this part, and I've only got a few more minutes uh, in a final part, but my conclusion to this second part, thinking about Australian climate politics, is that any party that lacks a credible, ambitious climate policy in 2019, or even in 1989 for that matter, really ought to be basically disqualified from serious electoral consideration due to being so fundamentally disconnected from reality, and or willing to sacrifice the lives of millions, perhaps even billions, of people for their agenda. But why is there this disconnect between the major parties and what scientists are telling us? Why are we doing so, so poorly? This is a complex question and I could give uh, whole lectures on it and have, and it was a whole chapter of my PhD thesis. But the short answer is about the stories that we tell. That there are certain stories by which we uh, orient our lives, that make the world make sense to us, that give us a coherent understanding of what's going on, 
um, and all of us draw on a mixture of such stories. Um, but some of the dominant stories in our culture are deeply threatened by the realities of climate change. Um, and the, the dominance of those stories being threatened leads to us not wanting to face up to those realities. Leads to various forms of denial, uh, of looking away, um, or more subtle forms of denial where we, we say we accept the science, but then the response is really symbolic or very slow and incremental um, and, and is actually out of touch with, with what's being called for. Uh, and it's a form of psychological self-defense where we are defending the coherence of our understanding of the world. We are defending those narratives that are precious to us, the narratives that we are a decent, upstanding nation um, that uh, you know, is, is fundamentally you know, more or less just and okay and doing good in the world. The narratives that say technology is, is a net good and, and uh, can solve our problems for us. Um, the narratives that say uh, we don't need to look at uh, inequality because as long as the whole economy is growing, then everyone is going to be uh, getting better. You know, the rising tide is going to lift all boats. But if there's another rising tide, um, then some of those narratives start to become more questionable. If at the heart of some of these narratives of growth and of the power of technology and of Australia being a fundamentally you know, just and okay uh, society, if at the heart of those narratives is a reality that there's a deep shadow side to that growth, to the use of that expanding technology and energy um, profligacy, uh, then those stories get threatened. Um, and that threatens us with the chaos of no longer understanding the world, threatens us with the chaos of having to rethink fundamentally the stories that we tell and that we live by. And that is a difficult thing to do. We, we would rather see the world burn than change our minds. And when you put it like that, it seems crazy. And it is, it is a kind of craziness. Um, uh, but um, this is where, for me, being a Christian makes a big difference. Because the stories that Christians live by are not simply the stories of broader society. In fact, living by the story of Jesus invites us to examine those stories critically and to see that some of them are based on what Christians call idolatry, the taking of a good thing and treating it as though it is an ultimate thing, um, finding in some good part of creation ultimate security or stability or meaning or purpose, um, uh, things that should ultimately only be found in God. Um, and when we uh, give thanks to a good creator who loves us unconditionally, and who seeks to be with us and for us in Jesus, then we're freed up to give thanks for all those good things and to put them in their proper place. So what is it that we can then do? If we are to live by a different story, what might the church's place in these uh, crises be? The scale and pace of bad news stories can be overwhelming because it's not as though this climate crisis comes at a good time when we don't have anything else on our plate as a society. Because it's not just melting ice sheets, there's also rising xenophobia has been in, in the headlines recently. And uh, there's biodiversity collapsing while inequality expands and there's civil society shrinking as refugee numbers and military spending and plastic pollution all balloon. And as I uh, write things online and I speak about these things, I often get questions that essentially asked, what should I do about it? And here's my take in a nutshell. Got five brief points and then I'll be done. First, repent and believe the good news of one whose love for you and this whole world is stronger than death. What that means is be willing to let go, to sit loose to some of those other stories that guide our society and hold on to the story of a God who loves us with a deep and abiding love. Second, be liberated from narrow self-concern, from apathy, from alienation, as you receive this death-overcoming divine love amidst a community of mutual gift, honesty, care, and respect. That actually this news is transformative of our priorities and our perspective on the world. So that means that third, we can grow in knowledge and care, not just maintaining familiarity with the headlines, 
but seeking to grasp the systems and the causes and the ideologies and the history behind them while connecting emotionally, effectively with the suffering that these are generating. Fourth, join with others seeking to make this place less unjust. And fifth, repeat steps one to four. Now, at this point, you might accuse me of fudging. I've, I've left vague the bit you actually wanted to know. That's step four. Yes, yes, that's all nice and good, but what are we actually to do? But I, I begin with those five points because any collective action not grounded in a community and in a story capable of sustaining deep care is likely to burn itself out fairly quickly. Any action that loses sight of either current realities or big picture goals can get co-opted by narrow interests. And so, yes, there may be other narrative-formed communities capable of sustaining attentive, engaged, committed care, but I'm speaking from within a particular storied community that I find life-giving, if also increasingly, in incredibly frustrating at many points, uh, but which I think aligns ultimately with reality. Now, the specifics of that point four, joining with others to make the world slightly more just, get quite complex, and probably quite a lot of what I write and what I post on social media and what I speak about relates in some way or other to that. So, to fill out my reply here and get a broader sense of what I think we should do, um, follow my Facebook feed or <laughs> listen to my podcast. But here's a somewhat summarised and necessarily simplified overview. The particular historical cultural expression of the brokenness of the world in our time and place takes the form of interlocking systems of falsehood, idolatry and oppression to which we can give a whole variety of names. Consumerism and white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, colonialism, imperialism, individualism, uh, undoubtedly many more. These are a whole complex set of realities and some Christians fear that any discussion of these structural evils involves an abdication of personal responsibility. But in naming these structures, I'm not trying to set up an alternative to an account of our personal failings, our personal sin, but I'm attempting to fill out a broader picture of what the scriptures call the world, the flesh and the devil, if you like, a broader picture that goes beyond just me and my sins to the brokenness of whole systems and the pervasive influence of these principalities and powers. And these interlocking systems result in a plethora of social and ecological and climate and economic and political and relational and personal ills, many of which are trending worse, as I've noted. So given the complexity of the interlocking problems, there are actually a huge range of useful tasks to do. It isn't just about addressing climate, though that might be one of the most pressing symptoms. We actually need systemic change at almost every level, from geopolitical down to local politics, uh, in economics, in culture, uh, in infrastructure, in the stories that we tell as a culture. And that means that for any given individual of you here, or indeed any local community that you belong to, there are going to be all kinds of opportunities and possibilities in your own context to seek change. So I'm not going to give you, here's an easy list of the 10 steps that you need to do. Now, there may be some things that are relevant for all of us. For instance, we can rethink our priorities in our voting so that we vote for the good of societies marginalised and for more vulnerable people and for the habitability of the planet long term, rather than just trying to defend our own interests. Uh, we can all try to reduce our exposure to the lies of advertising that, that, that sustain consumerism and an energy-intensive lifestyle. Um, we can all seek to respect others um, and really see our neighbours as fully human across boundaries of gender and class and race and age and so on. But in addition to these generically useful tasks, the specifics of how we might spend our time are going to vary greatly, depending on your strengths and opportunities, your qualifications, your networks, your contexts. So, whether that's working on political campaigns within or, or outside the party system, whether that's being in education or in building local communities of trust and action, whether you're in research, or whether you're raising and nurturing children, whether you're rolling out clean energy systems or developing policy, whether you're working in the justice system or doing conservation work, whether you're doing peacemaking, whether you're doing art and narrative shaping, or in dozens of other areas, those who want to see God's will done a little more on earth than it currently is have so many worthwhile options. So I want to instill a sense of urgency here, but also a real freedom that there, are, there is a U-shaped contribution to be made work out what that might be. Have a go. Fail. Try again. Fail better. Communities of mutual trust and care can function as a body 
as uh, 1 Corinthians says, with members taking distinct but interdependent roles within the body. Not everyone needs or ought to be doing exactly the same thing. There are many excellent and worthwhile things to do. Nonetheless, some people might realise that their current paid employment is actually doing more to contribute to the systems of oppression than holding any genuine possibility of affecting positive change. And so you may need to quit and find alternative employment, especially those with the economic and relational privilege to be able to do so without becoming homeless or going hungry. Indeed, I think part of the function of churches and other communities of mutual trust ought to be to enable some people to leave the necessity of the most destructive and least life-affirming forms of employment uh, through recognising their gifts and commissioning them to alternative service and the sharing of resources to enable that. Um, so, with a plethora of worthy tasks remaining for us to pursue, broadly I think they can be grouped into three main areas, and this is my last, last three points. Um, and I'm drawing on a scheme by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnston. First are holding actions, actions that hold back and slow the damage caused by those interlocking systems of oppression. So whether that's uh, providing legal aid to refugees, whether that's locking on to coal mining equipment, whether that's providing services for the homeless, you're trying to hold back and slow the damage. Second is the building of life-sustaining systems and practices, helping to create less damaging alternatives um, and nurturing them and helping them to grow that might one day be capable of replacing the death-dealing systems that we currently inhabit. So whether that's um, uh, building a workers' co-op or developing a better land tax policy, whether it's setting up a community garden or helping to install a smart grid, you're actually trying to build the alternatives um, and help them grow. And third is uh, a shift in consciousness, changing the culture, changing those stories that we live by, strengthening the personal and cultural narratives that build connection and compassion and courage, rather than fear and dominance and greed. And examples here might be pastoring a community of mutual gift and respect, or teaching primary students about sharing and consent and empathy, or making a documentary showcasing communities that are on a path to energy transition. And for those with the extra privilege of having space to consider what's most strategic, I think, as you've been hearing, that as a topic, climate is the most existentially threatening and is, is worth your attention. Or as a, a bottleneck for so many of the other issues, political corruption is one of the biggest barriers to necessary change. And as a multi-purpose activity that, that hits many goals at once, then helping to build local communities of trust, resilience, grace, and action is just wonderful at, at hitting so many goals all at once. Um, so wherever you find yourself, there, is, there are things for you to contribute, um, and the key is there's no doing that just on your own. Individual heroic efforts here are a form of denial. We all need to find communities of people facing this reality together, actively shaping our imaginations about the future and our activities in the present around a lifelong commitment to mutual care and, and, and deep relationships. And so do all the things I've just been saying with other people. Ask not just, what should I be doing, but what should we be doing? Thanks. I don't know how all that makes you feel <laughs> when I hear, um, I guess, the damage that's been done and is, is continuing to be done um, and our lack of response. Um, I don't know what you feel. I feel sometimes overwhelmed, sometimes frustrated. Um, there's lots of reason to lament, I guess. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote this song. Um, as we as a community at Newtown Mission and Annadale Creative Arts Centre were um, putting on an event and uh, seeking to have a conversation about this, about what's going on in terms of climate change and our response as a nation. Uh, and so at that time, I was on my mind was what do, when we gather, what are we praying? What are, what are we singing? Are there, there songs that voice something of how we should be responding in the midst of the reality of this going on in our world and in, in the culture around us? Um, so my mind went to Romans 8 that talks about all the creation itself groaning like the pains of childbirth, uh, that we too groan longing for redemption to come. 
And so I think, yeah, this is a little bit about giving some voice to that lament um, collectively, crying out to God in the midst of that. Um, but also, I guess, being people of hope. Uh, and in the midst of that, is there is God, if God is bringing about restoration of all things, bringing about new creation, uh, what does that look like? How do we join in that? Uh, what does it look like to pray, come, Jesus, come? Um, so, yeah, the final words in this song um, say, come, Jesus, come. It's a prayer that Christians have prayed a lot. Um, but as I prayed in this context, I, I can't help but think it's, it's saying, come, Jesus, come in me. Can I live differently in new creation? Uh, Jesus, would you come? Uh, yeah, in general, in how we live, can we live differently? Can we have different values? Can we have God's values when it comes to this? And come, Jesus, come. Can you come in our governments? Can, can we actually see a change of heart, a change of values? So, yeah, this is called All of Creation Groans, but it's a prayer. So I guess I'm inviting you into a, a space of prayer to, to groan with creation and to, to pray, come, Jesus, come.